Um, and so just by way of introduction, I know it's been a few weeks that we've been uh, in this session, but what are we talking about when we talk about what is a healthy church member? In the introduction, the, the um, author actually says, really, I could title this book, What is a Healthy Christian? Um, we don't really have a context in scripture or in the history of the church meaningfully um, where a Christian is not part of some local expression of a community of believers. So back, you know, I know we're going to be talking through Acts over the next few weeks in uh, worship, but what um, <clears throat> what we see in Acts is uh, the church being built and the church meeting together and the church being part of each other's lives in meaningful and organized ways. Um, and so there's not really this idea of a of Christianity in isolation or Jesus in my heart, but there's not um, some outward, local, organized expression of that. So when we think about a Christian, the Christian life, we have to think about the fact that the Christian life includes, must include, um, some kind of a community orientation. And we heard from from Doug a couple weeks ago uh, in worship about uh, the idea of fellowship being an essential component to that. And so Christianity is a communal reality. There's a communion that we have with God through Jesus, but then there's also a communion that we have with each other um, in both formal and informal ways. And so this book actually superimposes, um, and Sheldon mentioned this last week, the, uh, the kind of the, I guess it's a, a movement or an organization called the Nine, Nine Marks. Um, and it was birthed out of the book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And so this book kind of superimposes, okay, if we, if, we, if we have a healthy church and there's nine things that define what a healthy church is, then by extension, there's, there's marks that should identify um, what a healthy church member looks like. And so the nine marks of a healthy church are expositional preaching. Uh, and we talked in, in the first week about expositional listening as a mark of a, of a healthy church member. Um, biblical theology, and then we talked about the idea of being a biblical theologian as a, as a healthy church member. And then biblical, under the, so the nine marks of a healthy church are biblical understandings of the gospel. We talked last week about gospel. Conversion is where we'll focus this week, and then evangelism, church membership, church discipline discipleship and growth and church leadership. So we're kind of walking through these nine marks of a healthy church from the perspective of thinking about what is the members, individual members kind of contribution or what is their disposition towards that. So we started talking about the idea of an expositional listener, the idea that listening to God's word in a particular way. And so as a church, we want to be expositionally preaching and this is a way of starting with the text, starting with what God says to us and not bringing into um, the scripture what we want it to say to us. So starting with God and what his word says, what it actually means, what the text actually means, and then thinking about application of that text after we find out what the word means. So this is versus like a seeker-sensitive model or versus like a self-help thing where we're saying I need to feel better about myself or I need to feel better about my finances or my life or my relationships. Let me go see what God's word has to say and let me cut and paste what makes me feel good and what helps me in that way. And then we talked about the idea of being a biblical theologian. 
and this is just the idea. This is not meaning we have to go all go get MDivs or PhDs, but the idea that we're dedicated to learning those main themes of Scripture <clears throat> and what Jeremy talked about uh, and what this, the, the book talks about is the idea that we need to know what Scripture says and we need to know, generally speaking, what the Bible is telling us. One, because we're Christians and we're following it, right? But secondly, also because we need to be protected against false or unsound teaching. We need to be Bereans. We need to have, um, now I'm blanking on the word, discernment. discernment. We need to have good discernment. So there's that. And then last week we spent ta time talking about being gospel-saturated, being reminded of the gospel first, the scripture verses that were read, and then talking about being saturated in the gospel, we're brought into fellowship with God and then with each other. And so we're going to start thinking about being gospel-saturated ourselves and with each other, and then thinking about the, how that inward reality so on one level, the, in reality of, the inward reality of the individual church member, and then the inward reality of the church as a whole, but then how that flows into an outward reality and how that is out-facing. Um, and so we're going to talk about that um, as a good, from, from talking about the gospel to talking about um, our chapter or our subject this week, which is being genuinely converted. So what does it mean to be gen? What does conversion mean? What does true conversion mean? Genuinely converted. <clears throat> so I always find it helpful to think, to talk about, uh, or to um, say what we're not talking about first, before we dig into what genuine conversion means, we need to make sure that we're, we're saying what this, this does not mean. So the first thing that we're saying that is not, and this is not, this is not to say that this isn't part of the experience of a genuine conversion, but we are not talking solely about some emotional decision. So in my context growing up, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago um, in the um, meeting, in the uh, congregational meeting, is I grew up in a very decisionalistic, I guess you could say, kind of context where it was a big deal to walk the aisle or to raise your hand when you asked if you were a sinner. Um, and while that can be the first step in thinking about the idea of conversion, it can't be the only thing. So this is not a decision point in time. I think um, the church, generally speaking, especially in the context of the last hundred years or so, has really, really focused on this point in time. I went from being uh, a terrible awful person to I walk the aisle and now I'm a Christian and everything's perfect like this one point in decision and what the church has historically thought and what scripture generally teaches is that conversion is a process there may be a point in time where there's a decision that gets made but it often is a process and not a specific point in time so we're not talking about an, an emotionally manipulated point in time decision by itself um, we're not just talking about some kind of a moral change or some kind of behavior modification. There is behavior modification that is associated with conversion, but the, but the point of conversion is not behavior modification or changing the way that you think about morals. It's not a self-help process. 
this isn't us about us feeling better about ourselves. We will feel better about ourselves, but it is more the result of the reality of the conversion that helps us, not that self-help itself. We also want to say that this is not a, a human effort. This is not something that we do in and of ourselves apart from the Spirit working on our behalf. So before we are genuinely converted, we are first acted on. So this is not us having a human effort um, by ourselves, picking ourselves up by our bootstraps or whatever terminology you want to use. And we're not saying that this is some single critical event, but rather than a process, rather we're talking about more of a process and an outcome that we see on the back end. So the, the author says, defines biblical conversion as a, a radical turn from an enslaved life of pursuing sin to a free life of pursuing and worshiping God. And so God does the work. We are not doing the work in and of ourselves. God is doing this work in us through the Spirit. And the, the way that I've kind of broken down um, the definition or taken that definition apart is to think about conversion in three parts. To first think about we have to be convicted of our sin. Um, and then there's a repentance component and a faith component. So we are convicted of our sin. And then the result of that conviction of sin can lead us to repentance and faith. <clears throat> and so um, conviction of sin is the first part. Um, the first uh, passage I'll read is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And what I think is important to, to note with both of these passages, we're going to talk about both passages, but um, these passages don't leave us in a conviction of sin. I'm going to focus on that as a part of it, but... Um, these two passages really show us what conversion and the Christian life kind of look like, the promises of we're in sin, what repentance looks like, and then how we're kind of led out of that. So Paul, uh, in both of these passages, Ephesians 2 and Romans 8, starts with conviction of sin. It doesn't end there. The first um, is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in, what you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And Ephesians 2, 4 has but God. So we don't, he doesn't leave us there, but for the purposes of talking about conviction of sin, we start there. So true conversion starts with conviction of sin. Can someone pull up Romans 8, uh, 5 through 8? Just built in for a coffee break, coffee sip. <laughs> transitional time. That's it. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in both of these passages, we see a few things that I think are, are important to point out here. First, we see that a conviction of... So first we see that our natures are bent towards sin. So we are naturally sinful. It is how we walk. We'll talk about walking later on. But it is how we walk, how we um, live, everything about the way that we um, and, uh, walk through the world prior to being converted is an embracing of sin, an enslavement to sin. It's an all-encompassing thing. So when we think about conversion and the first part of conversion being a conviction of sin, the idea that we can be convicted of sin at all, that there's another way to live at all, has to come to us from outside of us. Because within us, all we know is sin. All we embrace is sin. We're enslaved to sin. So the language is absolute. And so the conversion process is a process that is started by God through the Spirit. There are, obviously, um, human means for that to happen. There is um, somebody sharing the gospel with you, someone telling you that you're a sinner, someone showing you your sin. But at the heart level, the only way that we can be convicted of sin is if the Spirit gives us that conviction. So the conviction of sin is something that is started by God, is started by the Spirit, not started by us. So, so conversion is a gift from start to finish, and it's started by a conviction of sin. So we're convicted by the Spirit indwelling us, and then the Spirit working in our heart, in our eyes, in our ears, in our heart, so that we see that the way that we're living, the sin that we're embracing, the sin that we're a slave to, is not the only way to live, and that there is another way, as Paul talks about, living according to the Spirit. So we can only live according to the Spirit. The dichotomy that happens in Romans 8, where he talks about living according to the flesh versus living according to the Spirit, we can't live according to the Spirit unless the Spirit has started a work in us. So that conviction of sin is something that happens before we are aware of it, for lack of a better term. The next, the second step is repentance. Um, and this is where I'm going to steal a little from um, Brennan's sermon on Isaiah 6. But uh, I started working on this before the email came out. <laughs> so... Fair. You were undecided on Tuesday night. I was. I was. <laughs> so can someone read Isaiah 610? Or Brennan, do you know it by heart to memorize? I, don't. <laughs> I haven't memorized it. Yet. So Isaiah 6, while someone's pulling that up, Isaiah 6 is obviously where is the, the topic of our sermon on and uh, worship service today. Um, but this is where Isaiah is enc encountering God in, in this kind of really supernatural scene. Um, but towards the end, when God is talking about um, what to say to the people, he, um, he talks about repentance. Nobody's got it. I can pull just it. Just 10? Yeah, just, just verse 10. 10, yeah. Make the heart of this people dull. Is that right? 
Mm -hmm. Make the heart of his people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So this is a description of how repentance happens. So repentance happens by hearing or seeing with their eyes, hearing with their ears, and understanding with their hearts. And then they will turn and he will heal them. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 in John 12, which we looked at several weeks ago in our study of John. And he says in verses 40 through 43, he actually takes ownership. So um, he's speaking on behalf of God in some way. So it says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So we see this um, pulling in of this Old Testament motif that we see throughout the Old Testament, really almost right away, once, I was post Genesis 3, this idea of God calling or the prophets calling or um, the judges calling for the people to repent and turn. So this idea of repentance is this, as the author says, this radical turn from enslavement to sin to freedom in Christ. And so we see in types and shadows in the Old Testament this idea of a repentance being, I'm repent. there's a repentance and there's a turning of away. There's a changing of death to life. There's a changing of sin to Christ, there's this idea that that repentance is an action that is the result of conviction to sin. And we see it even before Christ, that this idea is we're going to move from um, death to life, in essence. In Acts 2, we see the church kind of being established at Pentecost. And in verses uh, after um, the sermon is preached at the end, um, Sure, I've got this right. I'm on the wrong page. Acts 2, 36 through, or 20, 30, 26. Um, the end of the sermon, kind of the punchline of this sermon after uh, all these things are walked through, it says, Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So we see this repentant, this, this idea of conviction of sin. The Spirit has come on the on the people, and they are calling them out for um, crucifying Jesus. And 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So conviction of sin. I'm seeing this sin with my eyes. with my I'm hearing it with my ears. I'm understanding it with my heart. Now what do I do? So there's, there's this idea of I've got to turn from what I was doing to what I, what I need to do. And Peter said them, to them, repent. Again, repent and be baptized, uh, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. For those, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Where were they added? They were added to the visible church. Um, and then the last passage I have is Second uh, Corinthians 7.10, if someone could pull that up to read it. Second Corinthians two ten. Second Corinthians seven ten. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So this is an idea of this repentance, this turning away, this grief about our sin. If it comes from the Spirit, then it is real, and it can actually um, cause this true conversion, this genuine conversion that we're trying to kind of hone in on. Um, but if it's just going back to the, what is this not? If we're just grieved in our own flesh about something that we did that we don't want to do anymore, this behavior modification, then that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about, I'm grieved because... I yelled at my kid and I feel bad because I yelled at my kid and now I want to try to make it right, right? The parents are smiling. But I'm grieved because my sin is so great. The Spirit has opened my eyes to the depths of my sin. It's not just that I yelled at my kid, but why am I yelling at them? I'm yelling at them because I have a sinful heart in regard to the way that I interact with them. And I want to turn from the sin, not from the action. The turn from the action occurs as we uh, repent of our sin. Then we start to hate what we do that is sinful. <clears throat> the last part of the definition, I want to I want to spend a little bit of time with application because the chapter actually talks like does some application. So I want to spend some time there. The last of the three parts of a genuine conversion. So we talked about <coughs> conviction of sin, repentance. <coughs> And then the last is faith. So the Spirit gives us a conviction of sin. It, it opens our hearts to the fact that we are sinful and that we shouldn't stay in that sin. It gives us a motivation to repent and turn from that sin, to not be enslaved. Um, and, then it, and then it gives us the faith that we need to persevere in that process. So Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that's a, a good bumper sticker. Um, it's one of those common ones like Jeremiah 29, right? But um, in that case, in Hebrews 11, that's the first um, verse of a chapter that runs through the Old Testament heroes. It runs through, by faith, Abraham did these things. By faith, Abraham. Uh, Moses did these things by faith, Samson, by faith, all these people in the Old Testament by faith did this. The conviction that they had was in the situation where they hadn't seen Christ. They were looking ahead towards a savior. They were looking ahead towards something that they had not seen yet, but they were walking through obeying and they were doing that motivated and fueled by faith, the faith that they were they received from God. 
Calvin in the Institute says, faith is the special gift of God in both ways. It purifies the mind so as to give it a relish for divine truth. So it purifies our mind so that we have a, a, a satisfaction, a, a desire, a, um, a happiness in the truths of God. And afterwards, it establishes it therein. For the Spirit does not merely originate faith. So it, the Spirit, it, the, the idea of the Spirit giving us faith is not a one-time decisional at the at the altar i received faith and that's it but a faith um he says lost my place it does not merely originate faith but it gradually increases it until by its means he conducts us into the heavenly kingdom so this faith that is we are receiving from the spirit is an ongoing faith it's a it's a it's an empowerment by the spirit um and it increases as we um, walk through this Christian life. <clears throat> and uh, the, the confession that we hold to, the 1689 um, London Baptist Confession, in par- chapter 14, paragraph 3, says, This faith, although it be in different stages and may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of it different in the kind or nature of it, as is all other saving grace from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Therefore, though it may, it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. So kind of clunky wording, um, but what it's saying is that this faith that is given to us is a genuine, true faith. And it might start weak or strong, but the focus of our faith is not on how much we have, but on the object of that faith, which is Christ, and he has promised us um, to hold us fast. I think one of the good ways to summarize before we get into practical application is uh, Heidelberg Catechism, which talks about, so kind of summarizing what we mean by genuine repentance. Uh, question 89 to 91, 88 to 91, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things. The dying away of the old self, think about Ephesians 2, Romans 8, this dying away to this enslavement to sin, and the rising to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more in hate, uh, to hate and run away from it. This repentance, this turning. So I'm turning away from this, die, this I'm, I'm letting that old self die away, even though it won't fully die until we're in glory. We're, die, we're letting this old self, this enslavement to sin, die away as we walk away. We've turned away from that way of thinking, from that way of living, and we're genuinely sorry. We're repentant for our sin, and we hate and run away from that sin more and more. What is the rising to new life, rising to life of the new self? So there's a, there's a two-way street here. First, we're saying the way that I was living was wrong. Sin is wrong, and I hate it, and I want to run away from it as much as I can every minute of the day. That's the the disposition. But what are we running to, right? If we're just running away from something, that's not really a good um, way to live our lives. We want to be running away from something and to something else. So question 90 says, what is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ 
and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. And what are those good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for God's glory, and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. And I thought this summary by Scott Clark was really um, great. It says, in contrast to the modern revival traditions, which uh, we should better think of conversion as beginning with a gracious gift of new life, as we um, hear described in John 3 by Jesus, that gives rise to a genuine faith and repentance that continue throughout the Christian life as the believer trusts the Lord, lives in union with the risen Christ in the, in the visible church, attending to the preaching of the word, to prayer, making use of the sacraments, and seeing and seeking to be brought up into conformity daily with the Savior by the gracious renewing work of the Holy Spirit. So kind of a mic drop there. That's like a perfect encapsulation of what we mean when we talk about genuine conversion. This is a gift from start to finish. Um, it gives rise to genuine faith and repentance. So con conviction of sin, faith and repentance. And then it results in a different way of living, a different way of doing things. And it involves us actually doing things. This isn't something that we just keep in our hearts and just think about every once in a while. It's not, a, it's not only something that just gives us comfort, although it does, but it results in things happening because of this conversion. <clears throat> so how do we think about the application? How do, we, how do we think about the inward and outward implications of true conversion? First of all, any thoughts so far? I feel like I'm talking a lot, and I apologize for that. <clears throat> There's part of it where you want to, this, in finding three spots, like in conversion, mm -hmm. um, in some ways it's probably a little artificial. Yeah. But I guess one will be even when we talk about Armenians. I think it's more about our perception, our awareness mm -hmm. of what's going on. And so you like me, I found it helpful where it's like all of a sudden you realize there's this gap. And yeah. That, oh gosh. And then once you realize that, it's almost just, it's like a natural process. Like once the, this realization occurs and you can see yourself for who you are, mm -hmm. then it leads to something else. And so it's almost like that idea. Well, when will you say that it's like, well, before the creation of the earth, but my own experience, this is sort of when I became aware of what was going on. Yeah. So just interesting that we can find <clears throat> kind of distinct distinctive places within this like experience. Yeah. Even though it's probably not quite that, but at the same time it is that. Yeah. I, that's that a great sense. point. I think that's a great point. And even when you see in Acts two, like the the it says the spirit comes after the repentance, but we know that that's not true by the whole council of scripture, right? So I think, yeah, you're right. I think the outcome is we can look back and say, our conversion occurred at some point, right? Not a lot of us have this like road to Emmaus kind of conversion moment, um, but we can look back and say over the course of a period of time, God, the spirit converted my heart from death to life. And I know that because of these things these things that I'm seeing in, in the way that I live now. Well, like the aquarium that we swim in is space and time. Yeah. So 
we always impose space and time on things to for our understanding which God's outside of that. So mm -hmm. for us to impose it is also a little bit artificial in some yeah. way, but it helps us to make sense. I guess it's a matter of we do that and it's un and it's understandable. At the same time, it's not necessarily exactly like that when yeah. people start arguing about the sequence yep. and some of those yeah. things. It's like we could be a little looser with it, and I don't think we have to be argue over some of this as much as understand it's probably more of an experiential and us being in time and space that this is how we experience it. Yeah. It. Man, that's yeah, that's really good. I yeah, um, Calvin <clears throat> is is big on that idea. I mean, in his institutes, and you think this guy that's written this, these thousands of pages on the systematic theology, but when he talks about faith, he really adds a lot of mystery to like how this actually plays out. He does not get into the sequence of things, you know, and ju that's just an example. But I think he his disposition is towards that because the scripture's disposition is towards that. There's some ways that we want to try to understand the ununderstandable. Mm -hmm that makes sense um but he that's one person that I've, just interacting a little bit with his sections on faith it's like we're, you know there's a lot of mystery here into how this actually plays out versus you know he's very and other other theologian historical theologians are very like dogmatic about like this is how the church worship service should run or this is how whatever should be <clears throat> Um, as we transition to application with the last 15 or 20 minutes, I one, just want to, yes. Question. So you brought up, you brought up Acts 2. Um, we read it earlier. So, and you, and you said it in passing how it, 37, when it says, brothers, what shall we do? And then 38, and Peter says, then repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can read that, and you, you, you said that you could suggest Yeah, the sequencing that is like, I'm receiving the Holy Spirit after I... Because I have repented and been baptized, sort of thing. Yes. Now. Yes. Now, we know, right, you said... It, it, but this is, yeah, this is that, this is Peter speaking in a human term, in right. human terms to people that were like, what the heck? Similar to like, like Genesis 6. But it, but, says, yeah. I regretted making. Yeah, so this guy gets to his point a little bit where it's like the, the sequencing that Peter talks about here is is not necessarily the the correct, like in reality what happened, but the spirit had already fallen on the people early before that. So their their conviction of sin, we've we've established in other parts of scripture, conviction of sin is a is something that is given to us. So the conviction of sin was given to them by the Spirit at that moment. So their conviction of sin to even ask, what shall we do, means that the Spirit was there before. Hmm. But in the, the, I don't know, in the sermon, it was repent, even though you can't repent until you're convicted of sin and you can't repent until the spirit's there right but then the sequence that he goes through well if you're a child of wrath you're not going to repent sure so something yeah. has to change your well, nature and, and that's respect and is it you 
Yeah. And that, that's just a burst that gets really misinterpreted. Right. You know, there's... Well, and you can turn it into almost a transactional thing. Yeah, I yeah. Do this, you do this. Well, it reads transactionally. You know, <laughs> if you just... I mean, I know, and I'm probably sure... I'm sure it's different in Greek or whatever, but it reads transactionally. But if you... And if you read that in isolation and don't think about the totality of what Scripture says about repentance, about conversion, then you can get stuck in, okay, I have to be baptized in order to get forgiveness for sins I have to be baptized in order to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit but earlier it said the Spirit had already fallen on them and the ones that repented they repented because the Spirit had fallen on them and right. so similar to the first John 4 yeah it's like we love why it's coming first well we're things. we're even now because you just stole my thunder <laughs> <laughs> So, well, I just just by way of awkward transition with the last we're 10 up. minutes, we're tied. <laughs> I got to try to figure out a way to Best fit in Isaiah. Best two out of three, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, when we think about, okay, what does this look like? So the, the book does a really good job of like, I de- very small, a small part of, the, of, of the, the, the chapter is, what is conversion? I kind of expanded on it because I think it's an important concept for us to understand. But we always want to say, okay, well, what does that mean? We could talk about the theology, you know, but what does that mean? And um, the book does a really good job of um, of asking questions about, like, what is what is true? How do I know that I'm genuinely converted? What does that look like, practically speaking? And I think that's important when we tie this back. So we're kind of diving in deep into what it means to be genuinely converted as an individual person. But the goal of this is, what does it mean for the the church, the local congregation? How does that work out? And so when we're thinking about these, um, knowing our own souls is what he kind of talks about, is we want to be able to think about these individually. So what I'm going to ask these questions of myself But then I want to be helping my brothers, my brothers and sisters in Christ that I'm in relationship with as part of a local congregation, help them work through work through some of these questions, too. Um, Maybe they're dealing with doubt. Uh, Maybe they're too. Maybe their confidence is high, you know, whatever that looks like. Um, So the first so in first John from start to finish is pretty much a straight up devotional on what does conversion look like in the life of the believer? So John 1, 1 John 1, 6 through 10, talks about, and I'll read that one. Um, If we say we have fellowship with him, so this fellowship is this conversion, this I'm I'm not in enslavement to sin, I am walking with Christ. Um, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us all from sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, this idea of repentance, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So this is the idea of thinking about whether we're walking, we're walking through life in light or in darkness. And John is kind of pulling these dichotomies through from 
the Old Testament to the New Testament, pulling the dichotomies of like in the flesh or in the spirit. There are two ways to live. And there's no in between. And if you say you believe, if you say you walk in the light, but your life looks like this, then you're liar. You're a liar. He says you're not, you're de- either deceiving yourself, and you're making Christ a liar. <clears throat> so we desire. This is not that we have to be perfect and never sin. That's not possible this side of heaven. But we desire to kill sin, and we desire to walk in the light of Christ. So we walk the simple process of walking. Our actions, the way that we, our disposition, generally speaking, reveals our desires. <clears throat> and he says, those who do not desire this, who live and walk in habitual and unrepentant sin are not truly converted. So that's one of the things we can say. A mark of somebody that's genuinely converted is not that they don't sin, but that they hate their sin, that they repent of their sin, and that they don't walk in embrace that enslavement to sin. They don't walk in unrepentant sin. They don't embrace sin that is unrepentant and habitual. Um, they eventually will repent of that. So we would say that certainly somebody that embraces sin is unrepentant of it would be in danger of not being genuinely converted. Now, we don't know. We're in a time and space period. So we don't know if they will repent eventually, if that genuine repentance is being suppressed. Um, But we do know that that is a sign of a lack of genuine conversion. The second is um, love of God uh, the Father. So John, 1 John 2, 15, 16, and then 22 through 23 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father, the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So this tying in of like if you are walking in the light of Christ that he talks about in verse in chapter one, that means that you have love and you're connected to God the Father. And if you don't, then you're not. So this dichotomy again of loving the world. And by the world, he doesn't mean like the physical world. Obviously, God created the physical world. It's fallen, but it's God's creation. But the world in terms of, he defines it in verse 16, the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life. So the desires for that enslavement to the flesh, that going back to Ephesians 2, Romans 8, beginning of those passages. Um, The third that John gets into in chapter 3 of 1 John is love for other Christians. So this is kind of tying us back to um, the church, what it means to be part of a church and what it means to be a a healthy member of a church. John 3, uh, 14 through 19, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. These dichotomies again, death and life, darkness and light, world and the father everyone who hates his brother is a murderer murderer and if and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him by this we know love that he has laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So he is saying, John is making this case for this, what this genuine conversion look like. It looks like we are aiming to walk in light and not in darkness. We are aiming to love. We have a love for God. We have a love for Jesus and a love for God. We have a love for other Christians. So when he says brothers, he means everybody. All Christian, all of our Christians, but specifically, we have a, a genuine love for the Christians that we are put in physical, locational context with. Um, the last is the testimony of the Spirit that we are children of God. Um, this idea of crying out, Abba, Father, in Galatians 4, 6. Um, John gets into that in 1 John 4, um, where he says, But this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his Spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And then the last point that is made is the idea of persevering in the faith. And this is a little bit difficult because of this time-space kind of limitation that we find ourselves in. Um, but the idea is that if we are genuinely converted, that means that God has interacted, has, has intervened in our specific lives and has changed our hearts, has taken us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that is not something that can be taken away from us. And that is not something that we can take away from ourselves. So because it starts with God, because the Spirit begins the work in us, it is not something that can be lost. It is something that we, if the true, so the truly converted, the genuinely converted person will not fall away. It is an impossibility for, for God to indwell somebody with his Spirit, change that person's heart, give them a conviction of sin, give them a desire for repentance, give them faith, and that faith of not the one-time faith that Calvin talked about, that one-time faith, but that faith that lasts, that grows over the course of that person's life. It's not possible for that to be undone. It can't happen. <clears throat> There's lots of different verses, uh, Bible verses we can talk about here. Um, but Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 is one of the clearest. Um, in him we obtained, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In, he, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Romans 8, uh, 15 and 16. So taking that initial, the, the initial verses five and six that talk about living in the flesh versus living in the spirit. 15 and 16, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, we cry Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So talking again, again, about that idea of inheritance. There's an inheritance that happens that's not um, undoable. London Baptist, Baptist chapter 17, those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect unto can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and calling of God are without, are without repentance, from which the source he still begets and nourish, nourishes into them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit into immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock, which by faith they were fastened upon. Notwithstanding through unbelief and temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and the love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured to them, yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they shall they being engraved upon the palms of his hands, and the names having been written into the book of life from all eternity. So this idea that this is a sure thing, and this I love the language here. It's less clunk, clunky, but it says the storms and floods arise and beat against them. That is going to happen in our lives. We are going to be tempted by Satan, especially if we're truly. Um, converted, Satan is going to go after us even more. Um, but he ultimately will fail. He ultimately will not have success at pulling us out of the grip of our loving God. And so that should result in tremendous confidence in the believer, in the church member. We should be reflecting on these truths. We should be reflecting on these questions. And it should help us to help others in our in our um, community, in our small groups, in our just day to day interactions with each other, and that should spur on a, an even deeper unity in the in the body of Christ. And as we'll look at next week, it doesn't stay there; it spurs us on to evangelism. Because if we have received such great news, how can we keep that to ourselves? Um, any final thoughts, questions? Kept it on timing on track. Well. So we can think of James, <clears throat> but just the entire book of James. Yeah. The, the factual mm -hmm. faith, faith that works. Yep. Faith that is true and genuine. And uh, a lot of times the concept and the understanding is that James and Paul are contradicting each mm -hmm. other, that James is teaching. No, they met up. Guys. They, did. they met up and compared notes, yeah. right? That's in scripture. They met up and compared notes, and they didn't have disagreements. There right. were no disagreements, right? Uh -huh. Right. And, uh, and because we know that James is speaking of a faith that is true, that is real, mm -hmm. and a faith that is true and that is real leads us to good works, leads us to fruit, leads us to evangelism, yep. leads us to those things because of the root of our salvation that we mm -hmm. have in Christ. Yeah. And thanks be to God, He's given us Paul who just expounds and talks about this vertical reality that we have, right? But this, as I talked about at the beginning, this communion that we have is a communion vertically with God. And then James comes in and talks about this horizontal communion that we have with others and how that 
true conversion, that true faith that is in us, that the Spirit is working in us actively over periods of time, is not able to stay inside of us. And that's ultimately why, as Doug said a couple weeks ago, this idea of fellowship being so foundational to the Christian life is that we can't do it ourselves and we can't keep it to ourselves. So that flows out in the way that we live. And James talks about this working faith. It, it flows out in the way that we evangelize and tell others. Because God, even though this is a work that is start to finish God's work, he uses scripture, but he uses his people to actually be the effectual means by which conversion is initiated. All right, no other thoughts? Thanks for yes. I think sometimes there's a danger, especially with new believers, that they, and a lot of churches operate this way, and some um, organizations as a whole, but they fall into this, okay, now that you're born again, now you do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, do this, and don't yeah. do that, and then they just end up walking according to the law, yeah. as opposed to letting God change their heart and then it comes out of a genuine desire to please God as opposed yeah. to, oh, I can't do this, I can't go there, I can't do this, I can't go there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a great point. I think we often can fall into that idea, and it could be even motivated by good intentions. You know, I want to honor God, so here's a list of things to do and not do. Um, we have to always tie to tie ourselves back to what's our motivation. And I think I talked to, well, I can't remember the scripture, the scripture now, but there was one scripture where it talks about the idea of not doing things according to, oh, it was, um, it was, it was not, it was Heidelberg Catechism. Sorry, didn't mean to elevate catechism to scripture, but it talks about what are good works done out of true faith, conforming to God's law, done for God's glory, and not based on our own opinion or on human tradition. So kind of differentiating and making sure that our motivations are in the right place and not that we're trying to earn more of God's favor or try to get more grace or get more faith from, from God. Um, that is not the point, but it is a ditch that we can easily fall into with the best of intentions. All right, well, I'm gonna close this in prayer. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Father, thank you for uh, this time that we've had together. Thank you for the opportunities that we had to dig into your word, um, to dig into um, just this idea of conversion, um, the idea that this is such a mysterious thing, but you've revealed uh, some of what you have uh, done in our hearts to us. Thank you for um, the spirit and the, the, um, the conviction that comes uh, the repentance that comes and the faith that comes. We thank you for those things. Uh, we pray that you would uh, be with us as we transition over to worship, that you would be with the leaders of the worship service, um, and that you would uh, open our, um, our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to what you have for us today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.